It's official. One Shining Podcast is back, and I am your host, Tate Frazier. And as March Madness begins, we're covering everything from Selection Sunday all the way to the championship and beyond. We're going to have great guests that are coming through on the show. And look, if you're a friend of the program and you're already subscribed, you don't have to do anything. OSP is back. It's going to be right back in your feed. And if you're not a friend of the program and this is your first time on the rodeo, then let me tell you this. You need to go to Spotify, Apple, or wherever you get your podcasts and smash subscribe today because the OSP show is back. This episode is brought to you by cars.com. When you add your car to your garage on cars.com, you'll unlock access to real-time insights into how much your car is worth. Plus, View its historical and projected value to decide when to sell. So when the time is right, you can secure an instant offer from a local dealership or sell it yourself on cars.com. Start tracking your car's value with your garage on cars.com. This episode is brought to you by Viore. I love sports. I know you do too. I also know that lots of you exercise, but if you're like me and my wife, the, the beloved sports gal, you're sick and tired of ugly, uncomfortable workout gear, especially, you know, I do a lot of walking. I walk around LA, I make calls, I listen to podcasts. Here are two words that will change everything. Viore clothing, a line of activewear that is unbelievable. The best thing about Viore is you can lounge around in it, you can work out in it, you can go outside, you can go shopping down in your local wherever, and you never feel like you're either underdressed or overdressed. You're just comfortable. You can wear it when you're training, traveling, lounging around the house. Go get yourself some of the most comfortable and versatile clothing on the planet. Here's the deal. Our listeners get 20% off their first purchase at viori.com slash Simmons. Once again, V-U-O-R-I.com slash Simmons. Hello, media consumers. Welcome to the Press Box. Brian Curtis of The Ringer here, along with producer Erica Cervantes. And we are joined by a good friend, an Oscar-nominated sports writer, at least in our minds. <laughs> he is Wall Street Journal columnist Jason Gay. Jason, how you doing? Uh, I'm just great. For the record, uh, no Oscar nominations. Uh, I did once uh, get nominated for best speech at the uh, Chenery Middle School in Belmont, Massachusetts, way back in the day. But uh, yeah, no Oscars. No, it's not a spoken word Grammy in there somewhere. <laughs> you know, like I'm only an E, a G, an O, and a T away from an E. Got okay. <laughs> Coming up on today's show, we're going to be able to watch baseball this season, right? Uh, will Aaron Rodgers have to deal with the New York media, or is he already <laughs> dealing with it? Plus, Seth Rogen versus his critics. How does tell Stephen A that you mean no offense <laughs> and taps for the Boston Phoenix? But first, Jason, have you been monitoring the match of the day situation over there in the UK? I have. You know, I will confess I didn't know a great deal about the history of match of the day and how significant you know, a, a, a thing it is in the UK, but wild, wild past couple of days, Brian. And, uh, you know, some lessons to be drawn from what we've seen over here as well. Some background here for American sports fans. Match of the Day is the long-running soccer studio show on the BBC. Gary Lineker has been the host or presenter, if you will, of that show since the 1990s. 
He's never been shy about sharing political opinions, including criticism of the UK's migrant policy. And last week, on March 7th, Lineker weighed in against a new bill proposed by the Home Office there in the UK. On Twitter, Lineker called the bill, quote, cruel policy directed at the most vulnerable people in language that is not dissimilar to that used by Germany in the 30s. Now, here in the U.S., Jason, we know what happens when a sportscaster ventures a political opinion. Clay Travis makes a video about them. But in the U.K., the BBC is funded by all television consumers, and the BBC wears a mantle of neutrality even more proudly than ESPN does. So politicians weigh in, the prime minister weighed in, the BBC took Lineker off match of the day this weekend, I believe. They used a phrase like stepped back <laughs> for a match of the day. I believe they asked him to apologize and he declined, right? Mm-hmm. And then they yanked him. Let's just pause the story right there for a second and, and talk about that. Because doesn't this feel like a funhouse mirror version of the story we've seen in the United States with ESPN personalities, other sports TV people when they get involved in politics? Absolutely. But I think it's sort of what happens after Lineker is removed from the air that makes it very unusual because we did not see this in the States and what we, you know, I mean, you'll, I'm sure, go on from here. But it is the reaction of colleagues and other people that he works with uh, that really sort of, you know, took this to 11. Essentially, everybody said, well, if Lineker isn't going to be on the air, then I'm not going to be on the air. Yeah. This included famous personalities like Ian Wright, Alan Shearer, about a half dozen more people. So the match of the day program this weekend was not actually a studio sports show, but a 20 minute long announcerless highlight show. We know the networks love to do the announcerless game. This was the announcerless studio show, truly a new breakthrough in sports television. And and that really is the difference here is that, you know, as you point out, we've had a number of instances of, you know, people in sports commentary weighing in on political issues and their employers getting agitated about that. What makes this very particular is that having colleagues step down or step aside or go on strike in solidarity with them and to the point that you're actually shutting down this beloved program really speaks to like, you know, the dissatisfaction of the way the BBC handled it, but also that you know, this is a little bit of a different scenario, different kind of workplace environment. Absolutely right. Because we remember what Jamel Hill went through with her bosses at ESPN. There was lots of support from Jamel's colleagues over there. I don't remember mass numbers of them saying, if she's not on the air, I'm not on the air. Right. Well, literally walking off, which was what happened there. Yes. In the yeah. Because it's always this interesting mix, isn't it? Between support for my colleagues support for my colleagues to specifically talk about politics and politi and policies that they find to be degrading and dehumanizing. And then, says the sports commentator, my own ambition, my own right. desire to stay in the good graces of the company. Sure. And, and people making that sort of business decision in terms of how they want to react to that. What was also particular about this, in addition to the colleagues, you know, declined to participate. You had people who are involved in the games themselves weighing in. Jurgen Klopp, the manager of Liverpool, you know, speaking in defense of Lineker and, 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 you know, his right to be heard and saying that, you know, the opinion that he said, you know, isn't particularly novel, you know, given the context of it uh, and that, you know, basically standing up in support of him. 
It's interesting too, on the subject of the funhouse mirror version of the American controversies, that you know when we when we had the version of this at ESPN, it was always people citing ESPN's subscriber numbers falling and say, "Aha, aha, yeah. look at that." Go woke, you go broke. You know, you you had political opinions. That's why people aren't watching ESPN. Never mind that the cable bundle is crumbling for reasons that have nothing to do with politics at all. Um, the ESPN write-up of this controversy talked about how, well, the BBC in 2023 is trying to figure out what it is. It is sure. trying to figure out how to get people that are not 60 plus to watch the BBC. So I imagine somewhere in the UK, there's got to be a commentator going, oh, <laughs> this is why people are abandoning you in mass. Right. And, and you know, that we should mention that on a parallel track, there's this other controversy that's been happening with the BBC about, and I'm going to, I think I have this right. They're, uh, they've declined to air the final episode or one of the episodes of a, you know, ongoing Attenborough series that deals with uh, aggressive climate change. And the reason cited for, uh, and this was reported, the reason cited for not airing it was, you know, potential significant right-wing blowback, and they just did not want to deal with that kind of reaction. And so we're going to sit on this episode, not air it. Um, and it sort of speaks to, again, sort of the BBC's, you know, absolute panic about appearing, you know, political on any side, but also you know, maybe sort of the aggressive overreaction to, um, you know, critics out there. Mm-hmm. And critics wanting to say that everything is political. Right. Climate sure. change, that's political. That's Listen, a political opinion and, that you're and, having. And, and, you know, you and David have spent the better part of, uh, I mean, the life of this podcast talking about this issue and the politicization of sports and, you know, what is appropriate, what's not appropriate. And I think what has borne out very clearly over these past half dozen years is, you know, oftentimes when people are saying, you know, I don't want politics in their, my sports, they're saying effectively, I don't want someone else's politics in my sports. I'm perfectly fine with my politics in my sports. And, you know, it is just sort of another symptom of an incredibly divisive time and, you know, full of a lot of very unconstructive conversation where people are doing little more than sort of playing like hypocrisy police, right? And we're not actually talking about the issues themselves. I think Lineker's position, I mean, what's, what's unusual about it is that I'm taking a very principled stand here. He, you know, again, was offered the opportunity to apologize. You know, and how many times have we seen that, Brian? The sort of like, I use language I should not have and sort of like, you know, the 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 mild walk back to keep the job. Uh, and he did not do that. Nope. He was like, no, all good. Still feel yeah. that way. Yeah. Uh, it is also interesting, too, that I remember this from the Jamel Hill controversies, if that's the word I'm groping for here. But what would Jamel would always say is, look, I'm not stopping my sports program to be in. And by the way, I'm going to do 20 minutes on immigration right, right. now. Right. M Michael and I are going to talk politics for the ne next 15 minutes. Right. She was always saying, look, this is my political opinion that I tweeted about. Yes. I am hosting a sports show that is almost completely about sports. So if you are consuming this as a sports program, you will be satisfied that this is about sports. Also here too, interesting that there's, there's what you do on TV and then there's Twitter and then there's people that would like to make those the same thing in both sure. cases. 
Absolutely. And, and, and again, sort of what doesn't happen is any sort of constructive conversation about the issue that gets raised. We just go immediately to the appropriateness or the lack thereof in our perception of that and have a conversation about the business of, you know, what is you know, what is the business of these networks? You know, what kind of subscriber loss? We all of a sudden turn into like a broadcasting and cable newsletter <laughs> instead of actually having the substantive, more important conversation. Can we lean into being a broadcasting and cable newsletter for just one second? Every time. You know, I'm a fan. You tweeted a story from your newspaper, the Wall Street Journal. Mm. And you wrote this. This feels like don't look up where a big asteroid is headed towards some live sports like baseball. And it's going to have incredible repercussions. What is happening? What is the nature of the asteroid that is headed toward baseball? It's the uh, larger bases. No, no, it's not the uh, larger bases, Brian. It is the, um, you know, uh, uh, impending collapse of the regional sports network system in baseball and in other sports, I should mention, Brian. But as uh, careful listeners of this program and other programs know that, you know, these RSNs, as we like to call them, are the sort of local television outfits that, you know, show and pay teams for the rights to show uh, their ball games over the course of a season. And when you have 162 ball games, that could be a considerable amount of money. They have been a significant part of the economic puzzle for a lot of teams. However, uh, in the sort of, you know, unbundling era where fewer and fewer people are subscribing to cable and cutting the cord, uh, they are less successful and they are becoming an albatross upon these companies and they want out from underneath them they do not want to be paying these extreme fees to teams and so basically you know if you look at the things that are sort of holding up major league ball clubs and especially sort of mid-market you know smaller market clubs brian you're talking about cutting away a big pillar you know, you're talking about something that was, you know, a very significant part of the economic puzzle. It's maybe not going to be a crisis for the New York Yankees, the New York Mets, Los Angeles Dodgers. You know, your Texas Rangers probably should be okay. But if you're a small market team, if you're a mid-market team, if you're a team that relied heavily upon one of these, you know, RSNs, which is, again, facing bankruptcy, if they're not unable to unload these assets, you could be looking down the road at a significant correction to the economic model of your team. It makes me remember what a miracle the cable bundle was. Yes, for for, for the very important reason, which is that what is basically happening here, and Brian, I've heard you say this multiple times, the genius of the cable model for sports was not to get people who love sports to pay for sports. It was to get people who didn't give a damn about sports to pay for sports as well. That was the yes. incredible thing, that people who didn't care, wouldn't watch one second of ESPN were still coughing up a monthly carriage fee for the right to have this part of their bundle. And now we are going to what they call, I don't know, is it a la carte or direct-to-consumer you know, style? We'll take where, all those terms, sure. Listen, you know, like basically who's going to be holding up your team? It was the people who are the fans. It's going to be the people who are actually the hardcore people because the folks who did not like paying those extra fees, did not like having these cable bundles with lots of stuff they didn't watch, they have cut the cord. They have moved on to other options. And again, it's going to dramatically, I think, shake up a model that, you know, again, was sort of very fat for very long, but it's been significantly changed by the streaming era. Because the economics just don't work without the cable bundle. 
you need those people who are like, I am paying for cable so I can watch international house hunters to also pay your baseball team, your regional sports network, I should say, who then in turn pays your baseball team. On top of it. Yeah, sorry. No, but I was just, I was just to give you one figure here. Sports Business Journal says that the Pirates, the Pittsburgh Pirates. Yeah. Nothing wrong with the Pirates, but they are not any of the teams you just named. The Pittsburgh Pirates get something like $60 million a year from television. Yes. So let's say we go over the top. Let's say we go to, you know, a la carte and we say, hey, Pirates fans, we got Pirates Plus here (laughs) for $30 a month. There are going to be some people who will pay that. Which, right. by the way, is way more money than they were paying for their regional sports network within the cable bundle. They were not paying 30 bucks a month for the RSA. Right. Right. There are people that will pay that. But how are you going to get to $60 million with that kind of math? It doesn't work. It does not work. And, you know, in addition to sort of having the good luck of uh, a system in which people who didn't watch the sport were paying for the sport. The other sort of four-leaf clover that sports had stumbled upon here was having a product that was a day-and-date thing that people had to watch in real time that appealed to demographics that weren't easy to find in television. You had all these things sort of going for it that was just kind of bum luck for sports. Um, Baseball, the nature of it also is important to point out, Brian, is that this is not a shared revenue stream. This is not the NFL where the Green Bay Packers take away the exact same amount of money as the Dallas Cowboys in terms of television revenues. This is based upon your market, your support, what people are willing to pay. And it will really be interesting to see how that is, you know, figured out over these next couple of months. You know, a a big part of this too also is that, you know, baseball is sort of in the wings here waiting to subsume some of these uh, RSNs. You know, that baseball is saying, basically, you know, they're getting prepared for the fact that they will become kind of the um, clearinghouse of, uh, of regional broadcasting for a number of teams. Um, Are you going to pay a much different fee for, say, the Kansas City Royals than you would pay for the Philadelphia Phillies? You know, you would think probably you would, but like, how does that play into financial fairness in the sport? This is already a sport, Brian, that has really choked on the issue of financial fairness. You know, the final teams in the playoffs last year, all of them were major market, large salary, um, hitting that luxury tax franchises. So it's just going to get quite a bit harder for the teams on the have not side of things. Two thoughts here. One is that we, it feels like we're at the end of the age of streaming naivete. Yeah. And I love it when we read these articles about what's happening either with sports or what's happening with entertainment and those channels or those uh, streaming services. And the article always starts out the same way. It's like the streaming world promised us more choices for a cheaper price. We could watch everything we wanted and play pay pennies compared to the cable bundle. I'm like, wait, who was promising that? Right. Can, can, I, can I get a citation for where you were reading that you were going to get the exact same things right. way cheaper? Right. You know, and it sort of reminds me a little bit of, you know, I was saying, is this like similar to the newspaper business, which had to make this massive pivot in the last decade from being advertiser dependent to subscriber dependent? You actually had to pay the bills with the people who are reading the product, using the product. It wasn't subsidized by advertisers anymore. 
baseball and these regional things, it's a different thing because the actual networks are paying the money up front to the ball clubs. They're, that is just cash in hand. And so they're the ones that have to go out with their hat and get the advertising. And again, in a structure where you know, you have a whole wide palette of potential audiences, much more valuable to advertisers than some sort of small targeted audience. Totally, totally. And then the other thing I love reading is like, everybody's like, well, I cut the cord and now I cannot watch my favorite team play. Yeah. And it's like, well, yeah, because that regional sports network that you were depending on, that you're trying to figure out a way around that, that is a cable yeah. network, right? And by the way, a cable network, and this is my second point, that really doesn't have a reason to exist if it isn't showing live sports. Sure. And we're sort of, you know, uh, you know, Matt Belly makes this point all the time on the town, but like, you know, we are just increasingly migrating back to a version of basic cable, right? We, you know, the more <laughs> well, that we get away from it, the more that we sort of sit here and say, you know, it'd be great <laughs> if someone could put all this stuff into a single package and give me a couple options and I'll pick one of them. I'll pick maybe the mid tier or the premium or the premium plus. And like, you know, it, 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 you know, as people sort of sit here and like count the subscriptions that they have and also get agitated about the things they don't. I mean, how many of us have had situations where, you know, whether it's the TV show of the month or the certain game that you want to see and you're like, I don't have that. Like I'm paying for this and I'm paying for this and I'm paying for this. It's like you didn't have that in the sort of peak cable era. You if you had paid a certain amount, you had it all. And and, and we're, we're sort of like circling that uh, without saying it, I think. This is why I still have a direct TV dish on my roof, because I don't want to be that guy on Twitter who's like, why can't I get this game? Like that that doesn't work for me professionally or personally. No, I don't. Uh, complaining about something is like, well, that that would be fun to do. I, maybe I'd get you know some some likes on that tweet because it's really expensive. But I kind of want and need to watch everything. At least everything is defined by all sporting events. Has has old man Curtis ever had to put the ladder up and gone up onto the roof oh and God, adjusted no. the dish ever? And like old man weather? Curtis is way too scared to do that. <laughs> old man Curtis would be plunging off the roof <laughs> grabbing at the shingles on the way down i can't believe i can't see the longhorns what's going on <laughs> gotta adjust this thing pointed to the south <laughs> no but it's true and by the way whenever there's one of these renegotiation deals it's not just the rsn that isn't going to exist if it doesn't have live sports i mean tnt uh, is is right now pondering its future because Warner Brothers Discovery has made noises. Well, maybe we don't need basketball. Now, I know TNT has baseball and hockey, but are we coming for those, you know, two-hour and 45-minute versions of two-hour movies because they have tons of commercials in them? Is that why we're going to watch TNT? I was having this conversation with somebody the other day, like, no, that is not, that's not a, that's not a model. So, and I'd say the same thing with the networks when they were doing the NFL negotiations. If you don't have professional football do you have a network in 2023 i don't know i really don't and, and you know let's put football off to the side because it looks very stable but like you look at something like basketball and you know they get up every so often and make noise about you know mid-season tournaments and a world cup of basketball and all that stuff is kind of a little bit of like shaking pom-poms for potential bidders on the product because as we've seen repeatedly, basketball is, you know, the numbers are not 
tremendous, you know, from a standpoint of like, you know, it's, it's certainly not a growth thing on cable, uh, the sort of traditional thing. They have struggled to sort of show, you know, I, and, and I know the cases from basketball that, you know, the audience isn't traditional. They are consuming the product in multiple ways. They are using social media to follow games. It's like, but how do you sort of capture that, monetize that kind of thing, you know? And it is fascinating to see something like, you know, Time Warner get up there and say, did I say Time Warner? How old am I? Um, <laughs> but to get up there and say, you know, I don't know if we need it. And then NBC's over here waving up and down saying, yeah, we're going to get back in. Let's get John Tesh. Da, 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 da. Let's That's do right. this. You know? Let's get Costas and Pat Riley back on the studio show. Vessi, let's get Pete Vessi going. <laughs> let's do this. Coming up in 30 seconds, Seth Rogen has a problem with us, Jason. You and me in particular. But first, let us do the overworked Twitter joke of the week where we celebrate a gag that was so obvious that all of media Twitter made it at exactly the same time. Send your nominees to at the Press Box Pod, where they are always, always gratefully received. This week's runners up. Uh, this one comes from Greg Horowitz. Georgetown will be activating the Ewing theory by firing men's basketball coach Patrick Ewing. That was pretty good. You've been reading a lot about the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank, by the way, one of the most generically named financial institutions in this country, Silicon Valley Bank. I love it. Uh, it was an overworked Twitter joke to write. Imagine raising $100 million for your AI-enabled dog washing app and your bank sets it on fire before you can. Thanks to Andrew Pappas for that one. But this week's winner comes from our good friend Chris Almeida, who points us to this tweet. Quoting here, U.S. auto safety regulators have opened an investigation into Tesla's Model Y SUV after getting two complaints that the steering wheels can come off while being driven. It was an overworked Twitter joke to cite this line from the show, I think you should leave. A good steering wheel that doesn't fly off while you're driving. Indeed, that does <laughs> not fly off while you're driving. If you think that's the least Tesla could do, congrats. You made the overworked Twitter joke of the week. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. We're not all professional athletes, but we all have health goals. That's why Anytime Fitness gives you access to personalized plans and support from a coach. Plus, you can track your training, nutrition, and recovery progress with the Anytime Fitness app, just like the pros. With 24-7 access to more than 5,000 gyms worldwide, get more from your gym membership. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, restrictions, all apply. See website for details. This episode is brought to you by Viore. I love sports. I know you do too. I also know that lots of you exercise, but if you're like me and my wife, the, the beloved sports gal, you're sick and tired of ugly, uncomfortable workout gear. Especially, you know, I do a lot of walking. I walk around LA. I make calls. I listen to podcasts. Here are two words that will change everything. Viore clothing a line of activewear that is unbelievable. The best thing about Viore is you can lounge around in it, you can work out in it, you can go outside, you can go shopping down in your local wherever, and you never feel like you're either underdressed or overdressed. You're just comfortable. You can wear it when you're training, traveling, lounging around the house. Go get yourself some of the most comfortable and versatile clothing on the planet. Here's the deal. Our listeners get 20% off their first purchase at viore.com slash Simmons. Once again, V-U-O-R-I dot com slash Simmons. This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. Cars can be a big investment, so it's important 
to take care of them. I once got a car that I started out with 25,000 miles on. I got it to over 200,000 miles because I took care of it. You know how you take care of a car? You take care of the maintenance, the oil, the brakes, all that stuff. And if you don't, you can have a car just completely fall apart. When your car needs maintenance, head to Jiffy Lube. They provide automotive excellence at speed. Get your oil changed, brakes checked, tons of other multi-care services. It's all done by expertly trained technicians who actually care about taking care of you and your car. Jiffy Lube, car more. To find coupons and start an instant online estimate, visit JiffyLube.com. All right, Jason, we are recording on Sunday afternoon, so I wanted to draw your attention to the case of Seth Rogen and his critics, mm. or critics generally. Seth Rogen had this riff on the Diary of a CEO podcast. I think if most critics knew how much it hurt the people that, uh, that made the things that they are writing about, uh, they would second-guess the... <laughs> the way they write these things like it's devastating it takes years. i know people who never recover from it honestly years year decades of of being hurt by because it's very personal you know it, it's not like it's not it, it is personal you know um and so it is devastating when you are being like institutionally told that your personal expression was bad like that is like devastating you know, and something that people carry with them uh, literally their entire lives. And, and I get why. It fucking sucks. <laughs> All right, Jason, what do we make of an artist being stung for years, decades even, by his critics? I mean, first of all, just perspective here. Wasn't Seth Rogen effectively called an enemy of the state of North Korea at a certain point? You got to figure this guy has had bigger uh, critics <laughs> in his life. Speaking uh, of institutionally. Uh, yeah. Um, However, you know, this feels to me like a Hollywood version of a Kinsley gaffe, which is like, you know, I'm sure everything he's saying is true. I'm sure that actually he believes this and this is how people feel. And, you know, we're all used to, you know, athletes, actors, people in public life saying they don't read their clips. That if you believe your bad reviews, you got to believe, I mean, you believe your good reviews, you got to believe your bad reviews and saying they insulate themselves from it. But I am sure the experience is much more similar to what Rogan is describing. And I guess... You know, you can tell from the blowback that he's received since then. The the standard feeling is uh, the return on it is sufficient to justify the backlash and that, you know, it is particular criticism. It is oftentimes personal. However, the reward on the other end for the successes and the economy of what it's like to be, you know, somebody at that status in Hollywood is so wild that like, I don't know, sort of feels like comes with the territory to me. Critics have given Seth Rogen way more than they've taken away from him. Sure. He's a critical darling in many respects, I would argue. You know, he definitely has not had, you know, some sort of like perfect record or any measure. But yeah, he's definitely gotten more good than bad, I would assume. We've seen various versions of this take from Hollywood people, from athletes, even from authors, perhaps once in a while. And it used to really get my hackles up as a media writer. How dare you deny 
our place in this ecosystem? How dare you deny our right to criticize? And I still stand, of course, for our right to criticize and write movie reviews of the Green Hornet. But I also think, well, of course he feels that way. Of course, movie people feel that way. Of course, it's no fun to get trashed by critics every once in a while. So I I just sort of almost come to this detente within my own mind where it's like, of course, they're going to say that. And of course, we're still going to write reviews and we should still write reviews. But but of course, it's natural. Of course, he's not going to understand as somebody who is a movie maker why people would write reviews and why a negative review might not be personal. <laughs> the critic sure. might not be worried that you're going to carry this around literally for the rest of your life, but that sure. we're going to do it anyway. Sure. And I, uh, you know, I, to be clear, I don't think that he's, you know, criticizing the idea of film criticism. You know, I don't think he's like saying that, you know, we shouldn't have this kind of thing. I think he was, you know, taking exception to, what he believed was sort of the personal nature of some of the criticism that he'd received and the sort of like really sort of cutting nature of it. Um, But this is one of these things, Brian, where you and I, you and I are old enough, Brian, to know that the Savage Review is definitely not a byproduct of the social media era. We might think that viciousness came into fashion in the, you know, click era, but absolutely not. You know, you and I can both go back and find decades old, generations old examples of literary criticism, film criticism, political criticism that were just as savage as anything that you could find today. There's a very, very rich tradition of this and Norman Mailer and beyond, a very rich tradition of the creators punching back on occasion. <laughs> literally, uh, in some uh, cases. literally in some cases. Uh, and, and, you know, it just kind of feels like that's the economy. That's the trade here. Yes. In, in fact, you know, it's like, one of those things is very hard to quantify because there's far more easily accessible savagery in the universe in the social media era. But in terms of people actually writing criticism, it felt like that was the way you earned your spurs pre-social media to be a slashing, you know, outspoken, big opinioned critic where now it feels like the way you earn your spurs is to to do that sometimes, but you're also much more invested in like exploring the motives of the showrunner, right? You know, explaining what they're doing, tying it into other things they've done or into a larger universe of content. It just It just feels like the motives of criticism generally may have shifted a tad. I mean, they've shifted entirely. They've shifted completely to the consumer. I I mean, I I was just going to say when you were speaking that are are we even living in the era anymore of the sort of vicious critic? You know, it's gone completely to the consumer now. The backlash that you get now is direct from consumers. It's from readers. It's from people who go to see your your stuff in the theater. Um, They can get in touch with you directly. I think of the, you know, the time of the sort of poison pen uh, critic, you know, the person who could shut down a show or make a movie bomb is long, long gone. I mean, it's it's staggering to think about some of the stuff that, you know, was very, very common in the past. We have now sort of, I feel, running alongside it, 
a massive fan culture now where people have their, you know, surrogates out there kind of policing any sort of criticism that exists, you know, in print and, and, and from publications, you know, and anything that is less than a starry review of something, you know, gets a lot of backlash upon the critic. I think that that has actually changed. I don't think it's more, these are more acid times in terms of actual like media published criticism. I mean, listen, if Seth Rogen wants to feel better, go read some of the early reviews of Led Zeppelin published in uh, Rolling Stone. Yeah, Brian, they did not care for the Leds. Okay, they did not <laughs> care, and somehow, and somehow, here we are, fifty years later, uh, Led Zeppelin still as culturally relevant and fabulous as ever. So you know, these things yeah. have a way of fading into the woodwork. But let's say if Seth Rogen had come of age as a movie maker and actor and screenwriter in the 70s or 80s, and Pauline Kael had decided she did not like him, oh, not oh. only would the review have been so incredibly personal, it would have been 4,000 words long. <laughs> just over and over, just, just shot after shot after shot. You'd be going, okay, okay, it's just a comedy. I'm sorry, I didn't. Right. And and on the flip side of it, you know, the positive reviews, you're not even terribly aware of now. You know, we both know there was a whole time where the movies would come out and you'd see these double, you know, truck spreads and daily newspapers of all the positive reviews and the stars. But the, the occasionally you'd see a movie run the entire review again in the space of the ad. I mean, the sort of idea that critics are essential to the success or failure of a film, I feel, has long since passed. I don't think you and I need to dive too deeply into the whole Kendrick Perkins NBA MVP thing from ESPN last week. But I was watching one clip and I found myself pausing over a verbal tick that came from J.J. Reddick. Set this up for people. J.J. Reddick had come on to first take with Perkins and Stephen A. Smith to talk about Perkins's takes on the MVP voting. Listen to the way that J.J. Reddick sets up the point he's making here. I want to, say, I want to just say Did something. Back give, Stephen A., a I, I, mean, Stephen a I, mean, I mean no offense to you, and I mean no offense to First Take, because I think this show is extremely valuable. It is an honor to be on this desk every day. It really is. But what we've just witnessed is the problem with this show where we create narratives that do not exist in reality. I thought it was so funny because <laughs> he says, I mean, no offense, but then he's like, but here's the problem with this show. Yeah. I mean, if somebody came onto the press box and said, I mean, no offense to the press box. I just an honor to be here, but I find your podcast to be a super spreader of false <laughs> narratives and bad takes. I'd say, well, I am quite rightly offended <laughs> by that statement. If you had told me, 15 years ago that uh, Duke star J.J. Reddick would emerge as the Marshall McLuhan of the uh, 21st century <laughs> sports media. Uh, I don't know if I would have gone there, but it is sort of funny how he is playing this role in the show. And listen, they have him back again and again because they like what he does. Let's yes. make no mistake about it. Um, he is playing this character within the sort of ESPN universe of the you know, I'm the critic, I'm the ombudsman a little bit here, and I'm going to jump in here, you know, a little bit as a player advocate, but also kind of as like a media maestro here and 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 tell you why the structure of what you do is wrong. And he's, listen, 
what he said is not inaccurate. I mean, the whole like sort of rhythm of ESPN now in terms of the way that stories go is that they they cook it in the morning, they get it going, and then they blast it out across the megaphone throughout the course of the day. And you have, you know, the story, you have the reaction, and then you have the reaction to the reaction, and you can get yourself to five o'clock and hopefully to prime time and go back and do it again tomorrow. Um, it's how, you know, the sausage is made. And and it is funny to sort of see J.J. Reddick, of all people, you know, getting in there and calling them on it. But I would say that I don't think that this is some sort of thing where he gets off the air and they're all agitated at him no. for saying that. I think they know very well, you know, that that's what he's going to do. I think they say great segment because we know that nothing can really hurt a show like First Take. If you go on there and you're like, Stephen A. Smith, I have a problem with your entire approach to sports, if not television. Oh, well, that's a great segment. As you say, there's some, there's yeah. some heat that's going to, this, this was all over Twitter, right? Like, oh my gosh, here we go. They, they really mean it because right, the criticism of the show is they don't really mean what they're saying. You know, they're not either, they don't think that, or they're not as worked up as they seem to be on television. But when you get something that does feel really close to the bone. Then it becomes, oh, yes, they mean it this time. So that weirdly helps the show <laughs> even right. more. And listen, and there's this whole ecosystem that exists now in sports media where, you know, there are numerous websites out there that generate content based upon like X says X in the morning or X says X in the afternoon. Twitter reacts. And basically, it is reaction to the reaction journalism based upon social media. I don't exactly know how you know, economically viable it is, but it is this whole sort of part of the beast. And it's funny to me that it begins on sort of traditional television, right, Brian? Because like, what are the audiences for morning shows? Like, these are not things that are like, you know, millions and millions of people are tuning in in the morning. They are, you know, small select audiences. They are enormously profitable. I get that they are very valuable, but they're not sort of like America's tuning in all at once. It's something that sort of gets strip for parts over the course of the day for people to talk about and build controversies and keep the ball running. Because like we do not live in the era anymore where talking about what happened in sports last night is sufficient. It just doesn't work. People have already moved on. We know the standings. We know the scores. We have to have something else. And that's what those shows, you know, are, are, are terrific at, you know, generating. On Twitter, Bear Flag Fan had a field guide to prepositional phrases and arguments mm. that mean the opposite. Uh, for instance, in my humble opinion, if you start an argument that way, not humble, it, not humble, <laughs> not to be personal comma means. Yeah. In fact, what follows will be very personal. <laughs> I mean, no offense as JJ Reddick said, I'm about to offend you. <laughs> this was my favorite. I'm not the smartest person in the room means that you believe, in fact, that you are the smartest person in the room. Yeah. Two more topics for you, Jason. One also comes out of debate television. As we sit here on Sunday afternoon, we're waiting word as to whether Aaron Rodgers is going to leave the Green Bay Packers to join the New York Jets. Friday's pod with noted Jets fan Adam Gopnik. Uh, you can hear his take on Rodgers coming to the team. This is on the opposite side of the media universe from Adam. Fox Sports' Shannon Sharp on what Rodgers could face in the Big Bad Apple. 
I just want to see when the game, when the game, when he doesn't play well and that New York media start asking the question. Yep. Because you're not in Green Bay anymore. No. Mm-mm. And they don't lob softball questions Mm-mm. because – Oh, they're gonna they're gonna be relentless with it. Mm-hmm. And you, Skip, they, how many how many uh, talk shows and radio shows do you think they're in New York compared to Green Bay and yeah. Madison and look, Ash Wabanon and I, Appleton? I got it. Pretty impressive list of Wisconsin media markets there from Shannon Sharp. We got all the way to Appleton there at the end. <laughs> B- proud Badger Jason Gay is nodding right here. Um, here's one I want to talk to you about. Is there such a thing? as the New York media anymore. We know there is a press corps in New York. We know New York has tabloids that cover sports in a different way, perhaps in other local newspapers. But is that so different from, for instance, what people like Shannon Sharp are doing on national television every day that Aaron Rodgers is really going to face something different in New York than he faces right now? You know, it's a really good question. I think that obviously the way that newspapers have changed, the New York media isn't, you know, as vast as it once was, right? But it does still have this, you know, cachet of being one of the places that you can talk about at a national level and get an audience. That is not true for all cities and all franchises. And it is true that if you talk about the Yankees or the Mets or the Knicks or the Giants or the Jets even, uh, you will sort of hold an audience in a way that you may not from another part of the country. However, as someone who has spent a good amount of time in America's Dairyland, the idea that the Green Bay Packers are some sort of, you know, podunk franchise where they have one reporter sitting in an ice fishing shack from January until May. Uh, The Green Bay Packers are a signature sports franchise recognizable throughout the world. The New York Jets are a team that has won one Super Bowl since the 1968 season. The idea that somehow the New York media is going to police winning and making the Jets into, you know, they will not tolerate anything less than greatness. You're talking about one of the most forlorn franchises in the history of the NFL with the New York Jets. The idea that somehow Rodgers is going to like break under the pressure of the Jets media uh, ecosystem is is laughable to me. I mean, he's been a national commodity for a very long time. You know, yes, there will be a whole new different kind of exposure for him. Will he be talking about darkness retreats on The View and Kelly Ripa in the morning? Probably. There'll be a little bit more of that. But the idea that like Aaron Rodgers is like, somehow got to brace himself for the mighty, mighty New York media. Speaking as someone who has been part of that, I don't know. I think he'll be just fine. And is there really going to be a new audience for Aaron Rodgers at this point? The guy who's on McAfee every week and on podcasts I've never heard of, whose every utterance about football and public health for the last, you know, however many years has been chronicled. I don't know. Don't you think that Aaron Rodgers' agent is sitting him down and talking to him about the potential for like Gray's papaya commercials and like <laughs> nobody beats the whiz, which yeah. doesn't exist anymore. Dr. Zizemore and Aaron Rodgers pairing up for subway ads. Yeah, I mean, 
the whole structure of it has changed radically. Um, but I, I just think that, look, the Green Bay Packers, I'm familiar with that world a little bit. That's a hot house too. People care sure. a great deal <laughs> about the Packers. They are a publicly owned franchise, let's not forget. There is incredible passion around the success and failure of the team, and there's incredible passion around Aaron Rodgers and whether it's time to lose him or not. I think one thing the New York media quote unquote can do now is take something like the Sam Darnold seeing ghost thing and make it into a much bigger story than if Sam Darnold played in Jacksonville or Green Bay or wherever, or Zach Wilson's, shall we say, personal life becomes this national story, perhaps in a way it wouldn't be if he were somewhere else. I think, I think it has a multiplier effect on things like that. But in terms of Aaron Rodgers, I just don't like, you know, Aaron Rodgers, who's calling up Kevin Van Valkenburg and be like, I would like to talk to you for your ESPN story. Who's posting up in Mina Kimes's living room to talk to her for a big profile at ESPN. Who's on McAfee every week. I just don't, I don't know where we can go at this point. I don't know what, how we can multiply that so much. Yeah. I think it is becoming a bit of the myth of New York, uh, that, you know, you take any athlete who's not in New York and you say like, oh, well, if only X played in New York, their, you know, imprint you know, culturally would be vastly bigger. They would be massive. They would be a factor of 100 of what they are now. I, I don't know if that's necessarily true. In fact, we saw like somebody like Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving, granted, they're going to a franchise in the Nets, which are, you know, a very sort of strange franchise, but they were kind of hiding in plain sight, I feel, for the last <laughs> four years. Do you really think that, like, the there was a pressure cooker around the Brooklyn Nets? Uh, I don't get the feeling that there was a terribly difficult place to play. Not a pressure cooker, but certainly... Again, I, I'd say the same thing about KD. It's like he's gonna get he he's gonna get attention wherever he is. Like he's wherever gonna generate he his the his desired or more than desired amount of media coverage yeah. wherever he goes. It doesn't he, matter. Yeah. And like, look, we do it all the time. People in New York love to say, like, well, if Zion was on the Knicks, it would just be massive. It'd be incredible. You know, we don't account for the idea, well, maybe he would be like miserable and it would just not be a success. And, you know, maybe Zion's a bad example because he's had such a, you know, up and down past couple of seasons. But I tend to think we we sort of lean a little bit too much into the old mythology of it. Last thing that struck me about this is that so many of the things we used to think were unique about the tabloids in New York have been taken over by institutions like, let us say, First Take. Mm. You know, the back page of the Post and the Daily News is now the Chiron on First Take. Okay. Taking a couple of facts and spinning them into a highly personal diatribe is what we do on podcasting all the time. Speculating. You know, taking a story, you mentioned the NBA MVP voting and just shaking it for everything we can possibly get. I mean, the 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 approach that was wonderful and horrible at the same time about the New York tabloids approach to sports, that's podcasting now. That's television now. So I think what was, you know, may have been in some previous media era, something reserved for people who were in the Yankees locker room or the Knicks locker room. But let me ask you now something everybody gets a taste of to a certain extent. Where do you put traditional radio into that? Because, you know, sure. still chugging along. Where do you put that into? Because like, I feel like 
in some ways, we've all sort of broken off into our little tribes, right? There's the uh, radio crowd, there's the podcast crowd, there's the social media crowd. Uh, that, you know, they cross over a little bit, but you know, I don't know if the conversations are exactly the same. Yeah, I mean, I would. I, uh, Fan's an interesting one, right? Because like, is there anything that can replicate on a national level, like Fan signing on and talking about you for an entire broadcast day? Especially right. if it's something like baseball and like a pitching change late in the game, something that would not be on first take in such a way. Sure. And and also historically, the the radio programs would sort of make characters out of the newspaper columnists. You know, like, can you believe that so-and-so said this morning and like he's way off and like they'd have him on, the, you know, there'd be like all kinds of, you know, in lots of cities, all kinds of uh you know, frenemy to completely adversarial relationships between talk radio hosts and local sports columnists. Last one for you, Jason, before we roll here. It is the job of this podcast to observe all kinds of media anniversaries. And I noticed a sad one that will be happening this week. 10 years ago, this week, the Boston Phoenix, the famous alt-weekly that you Uh. may or may not have had some years with ceased publication how should we remember the boston phoenix it was a great newspaper uh it was sort of part of the heyday of what we called alternative media which in today's world would be sort of all of media because you know the alternatives are right and rare in front of us um it produced an incredible list of alumni i mean the time that I was there, I was there briefly in the 90s, late 90s, and I worked alongside people like Ellen Barry at the New York Times, Gareth Cook, who won a Pulitzer at the Boston Globe, Yvonne Abraham, who's a columnist at the Boston Globe, the one and only Tom Skoka, Mike Crowley from the New York Times. I mean, I was just sort of, you know, the the guy in the background there, but it was uh, just an incredible feeder system to a lot of great places. But it also had people who are lifers there who are incredibly engaged and obsessed about what their topics were. They covered a lot of things that traditional newspapers wouldn't touch. But I really feel, you know, it's an old, old story by now. They were very directly threatened very early by what the internet became, whether it was Craigslist, whether it was, you know, blogging, whether it was people who were able to sort of build audiences covering small topics. Um, it really sort of put the heat on things like the Phoenix. And it's not just the Phoenix, it's a whole world of alternative press around the country that that radically changed. It's an amazing list of movie critics too that stopped through there, came through there, wrote reviews for that paper. Lloyd uh, Schwartz, classical music critic, won a Pulitzer for the Phoenix. Uh, kind of a remarkable critic there. Yes, absolutely. And and listen, the movie critics, uh, Owen Gleiberman, you know, uh, Peter Keough, uh, down Jan- the list. Janet Maslin. Janet Maslin. Yep, yep. It's pretty amazing. All right. It's time for a feature that still survives in the 21st century. Against all odds, it's time for Jason Gay guesses the strain pun headline you ready i i i have to admit this is the area where i'm having the (laughs) hardest time brian you know you can throw almost (laughs) anything at me but i have been whiffing so badly on this thing i'm gonna get sent down to the press box g league i just know it you're gonna put me on a two-way deal and that's gonna be it for me i got a new england based pun today okay all right you're laying up okay local 
Uh, last Monday's headline about a new single featuring Donald Trump and those who participated in the January 6th siege of the Capitol was singing the coups. Mm. Got a lot of votes for Acupella, Kubaya, <laughs> Coup in the Gang, and new Insa record drops. Today's headline, Jason, comes to us from Claire <laughs> Considine and Ryan Mahan. It's from the AP. Yeah. Have you ever taken the Amtrak from Boston to New Brunswick, Maine? I have not. Okay, well, if you're ever on it, there will be 35 or so miles where the train is trundling through New Hampshire. Mm. And you're going to want to be aware of that because you cannot buy alcohol <laughs> for those 35 miles. As the AP reports, it stems from a New Hampshire law that forbids the serving of alcohol that hasn't been purchased in the state. 35 or so miles, you can't get any. No alcohol in New Hampshire. I want you to think of that state's motto as you ponder the question. What was the AP's strained pun headline? Live free or dry? Oh, there we go. There we go. See? Did I get it? Just had to keep it local. Yes. Oh, my God. I'm so proud of myself, Brian. This is honestly the highlight of my month. Nailing that. Eat it, shoemaker. <laughs> he is Jason Gay. I'm Brian Curtis. Production Magic by Erica Cervantes. Coming up, big guest from the world of television news, uh, baseball announcing, and even professional wrestling. Plus, of course, more lukewarm takes about the media. See you soon. <laughs>